right, so I have here more Dickinson poems. I, um, I reprinted the um, two that I handed out yesterday, but now they're nine, so they're multiplying. Um, who knows how soon they'll get to 1775, which is um, the number of poems in one edition. Um, there, there are some poems that it's unclear whether they're two or one or whatever, but there is one edition that, that has 1775 poems, and there are probably a few more than that. So just nine, not that many. Um, okay, so uh, I'm going to try and go over a lot of stuff today, and we'll do um, a bit more on Monday. Have people started Invisible Man? Okay, yeah, it's a lot. You've sort of started. Like, I've looked at it. Okay, that's, that's a um, start. Um, it's a lot. It's totally amazing. It's not a book that you should blow off. Um, not that you would blow off anything in this class, right? Absolutely not, because of the final. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. I know there's this vacation coming, but you're not going to be able to read it all over vacation if so far you've blown everything off. If so far you've blown everything off, it's time to start inhaling on. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but you need to do it. You need to start... Um, uh, catching up, because there will be a final, and it will matter. Um, Invisible Man is long. It's really, really, really totally amazing. Um, so, um, and I think everything we're reading is, but um, in this case, that's what is. Um, it also comes out of what we're doing right now in um, an interesting and um, unexpected way. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Ralph Ellison's full name was Ralph Waldo Ellison um, because he was named after Emerson. Um, and that was something that affected him because he didn't like Emerson, um, as you'll see, as will become clear. Um, so uh, it's something to be going um, into um, as soon as possible. Okay, so I want to say a few things about Dickinson and Emerson today, and maybe we'll get to Whitman and to Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. Um, if not, we'll talk a little bit about it on Monday, but you should be um, spending every spare second that you have reading Invisible Man. Um, all right, so we were looking at The Brain is Wider Than the Sky, which is still the first poem on the sheet going around. And... Um, what we were talking about is something, is, we were talking about this as an introduction to Emerson. It's a little bit as well um, like what Shelley was saying in Mont Blanc. Remember the question in Mont Blanc um, was, which is the greater, the mountain or the adverting mind? The mind, the soul that is able to perceive the mountain and its grandeur. And for Shelley, it was a sort of competition. That is, every time he thought he was able to think the mountain, able to contain the mountain within his mind, the mountain turned out to be greater than his thought was able to um, encompass. But every time he recognized that the mountain was greater than his thought was able to encompass, that recognition was itself a kind of encompassing of the mountain. Um, so that the back and forth in Shelley's poem was a back and forth between something so extraordinarily grand that it seemed to dwarf the human mind and the human soul, and the human mind or soul that was capable of perceiving 
the grandeur that seemed, but only seemed to dwarf it. Its capacity to conceive that grandeur was the opposite of the, of the thing that it thought it was conceiving. And that's why the end of Mont Blanc um, is a question, what were thou and earth and sea and sky if to the human mind's imaginings silence and solitude were mere vacancy? Um, the same is true for Dickinson. It's the brain that can contain the sky. Um, the brain is therefore somehow larger than the largest thing you can imagine. Um, you can imagine more than the largest single thing that you can imagine because you also know that it's you who are imagining it. Um, it is you who have the capacity to imagine that thing. That is perhaps what the you is doing in the first stanza. The one the other will contain with ease and you beside. Um, people suggested that you could be the reader of the poem as well. And that's right. She's saying something to someone else. She's speaking in words. So it's not only can I talk about the vastness of the sky, the illimitable sky, as Emerson might call it, as Shelley does call it, um, but I can tell you about it. I can be aware of you as someone with a brain also wider than the sky. There's a hint or implication as well that it's a love poem, that I can think of all this vastness and then I can think of something else as well, namely you, um, you whom I love, one of the mysterious yous whom Dickinson will occasionally address her mysterious love poems to. Um, to see a love poem, to see a love poem which is about as um, explicit as Dickinson is going to get, which is, say, pretty explicit. Look at the last poem on the sheet. It's the um, uh, other side from Wild Nights. At the, I mean, the other side from the brain is wi wider than the sky, the poem called Wild Nights. Um, not a title you might associate with Dickinson, but you should. Wild Nights. Wild Nights. Were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile, the winds, to a heart in port. Done with the compass, done with the chart. No more sailing, the winds can't do anything to a heart in port if I were with thee. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea. Might I but more tonight in thee. Since her poems, since the speakers of her poems are usually, not always, but usually ambiguously gendered, um, you should take the in as, seri as um, seriously sexual, um, even if it seems not the preposition that you would expect from a female speaker. Um, she's not interested in the gender of her own speaker, at least she's not interested in fixing the gender of her own speaker. Um, so there is Dickinson describing wild nights and addressing the poem to the person with whom she would like those wild nights. Take another poem where the speaker is gendered, female, um, the poem, um, two poems before that, I started early wonderful poem and very Dickinsonian. I started early, took my dog, 
and visited the sea. Um, there's a Kate Atkinson novel that came out a couple of years ago called I Started Early, Took My Dog. Are there any more um, sheets? You guys need them, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I started early, took my dog, and visited the sea. She's telling a little bit of a story. I started early, took my dog, and visited the sea. We could all do that. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me. So it turns out she's visiting the sea, not the way you would visit the seaside to see the landscape. She's visiting the sea as a kind of equal of hers, someone she might go visit, the sea. Um, it's like visiting your grandmother or visiting um, your college roommate. She goes to visit the sea. And the mermaids in the basement came out to look at me. They, they're kind of like dowager ants. Um, who's this person visiting the sea at his house? And frigates in the upper floor extended hempen hands, hands made of rope because they're ships, presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands. So hardly wider than the sky, she seems to be a mouse aground upon the sands. And yet she's visiting, as it will turn out, her friend, the sea itself. So hardly a mouse. Um, here again, we are seeing a dialectic, as we say, a flip back and forth between the very little and the very great, um, which Dickinson will do over and over again. Um, the very little, I'm simply a mouse. The very great, I associate with the sea. Um, we'll look at another poem in which he does that in a minute. Presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands, but no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe. So everyone looks down on her, but she's unconcerned. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe and past my apron and my belt and past my bodice too. So what is the sea, how is the sea moving her? How is the tide moving her? What is it doing to her? What, undressing her, yeah, Anna? Overwhelming, but seductively, undressing her. She isn't moved until the tide starts creeping up her body. Then she is moved. No man moved me. Um, she didn't find any man attractive until the sea itself began seducing her. So, and he made as he would eat me up, so that he is the tide, or the sea itself, and made as he would eat me up, as holy as a dew upon a dandelion's sleeve. And then I started to. She becomes aware of what she's doing, which might be dying sexually. Um, dying by merging with the sea. And he, he followed close behind. So she starts, she notices the tide coming in and seducing her and undressing her and embracing her and moving up her body step by step. And so she starts and he, he followed close behind I felt his silver heel upon my ankle. So she turns away from the tide, but he follows her. I felt his silver heel upon my ankle. 
then my shoes would overflow with pearl. A really beautiful image, which is no less beautiful when you see that it's sexual, that it's both a description of walking out of the sea, walking away from the incoming tide, and um, having the water cover your feet, cover your clothes, but overflow with pearl. Until we met the solid town, no one he seemed to know, and bowing with a mighty look at me, the sea withdrew. So essentially she's gone to see the sea, and um, she can take it or leave it. And she takes it, or him, to the extent that she wants to. So Dickinson, presumed to be a mouse, or her speaker, presumed to be a mouse aground upon the sands, is also the lover of the sea, and the lover of the sea on her own terms. So there you get that dialectic between <coughs> large and small. One other example of it is um, the next poem, the one right over Wild Nights, uh, the wonderful poem of Bronze and Blaze. <coughs> and this will be a kind of um, uh, way to get in. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about um, The Brain is Wider Than the Sky, but then go to um, Emerson. So what she's describing here, what she's looking at here, is the Aurora Borealis. Has anyone ever seen it? Um, we're not quite far north enough to see it frequently. You have? Where'd you see it? Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it can be really astonishing. And where, have you, where did you see it? Uh, in the Arctic Circle. Oh, neat. Where? Yeah, it was in Churchill, Neat. And was it amazing? Yeah. Yeah, I once saw a dim version of it, but um, I'm probably going to Iceland this summer, so I'm hoping to see it then. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be amazing. You can see photos of it. It looks amazing. Uh, one of Wallace Stevens' greatest poems, Wallace Stevens is probably the great American poet of the 20th century, um, is a very late poem called The Auroras of Autumn. Um, and it's when, in old age, for the first time in his life, he saw the Aurora Borealis. Um, and um, he talks of himself as the scholar of one candle sees an arctic efflu effulgence, effulgence, excuse me, an arctic effulgence. He sees and he feels afraid. Um, he's also probably thinking of Dickinson's poem. So here she's describing it of bronze and blaze, the north. <coughs> Tonight, so the north is filled with bronze and blaze, of bronze and blaze, the north tonight, so adequate it forms. Adequate, such a Dickinsonian word. Finally something adequate in the world. So adequate it forms, so preconcerted with itself, so distant to alarms preconcerted with itself, meaning that it is perfectly at ease with itself, unconcerned with anything else, so distant to alarms, and unconcerned so sovereign to universe or me infects my simple spirit with taints of majesty. 
So she sees the majesty and its unconcern, its sovereign unconcern, to unconcern with the universe, unconcern with her, unconcern with the vastest and the least of things. And yet her seeing that gives her own spirit, her simple spirit, taints of majesty. Till I take vaster attitudes and strut upon my stem. So she's looking at the sky and it's as though she's a little flower looking at the aurora borealis. And what she does is, and this is what she is doing always is, and suggesting we do always, is to take vaster attitudes. Another wonderful mysterious phrase, but it's that sense of feeling imbued with the vastness, with the overwhelmingness of what you see. Recall what Longinus, I quoted this early on in this course, what Longinus says about the sublime, that in reading sublime literature, in hearing sublime music, the soul takes a proud flight as though she herself had written what she has only heard or read. There's a kind of pride in being overwhelmed, a kind of way in which the thing that overwhelms you, whelms you. That is, you become part of it, or you make it part of you. And that description, that, that elevation, that is what Dickinson is describing here, taking vaster attitudes and strut upon my stem and what does that cause her to do? It causes her to disdain men and oxygen. Quite an amazing pair of direct objects for disdaining. Disdaining men and oxygen for arrogance of them. That is, she feels the arrogance of the aurora, the arrogance that has no care, that disdains men and oxygen, but she disdains them too. Men and oxygen, who cares? She's strutting upon her stem. Be back behind this somewhere is Macbeth, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. By that, Macbeth means that when the poor player struts upon the stage, he's being ridiculous. He's thinking so well of himself when all he is is a walking shadow, a poor player. But Dickinson knows that that strutting doesn't mean anything about our immortality, about our command, about our importance in the universe, and still she struts because of this fantastic thing that she is able to see and to know, this fantastic, overwhelming, disdainful arrogance, arrogance against her, unconcern about her, and yet arrogance that she too can admire and be in awe of and therefore internalize and join herself to. My splendors, now she's describing her own poems. My splendors, poetry itself, human 
art, human life, human experience. My splendors are menagerie. Yeats didn't know this poem, but what she is doing in a way is anticipating the circus animal's desertion. My splendors are a zoo, that's all. My splendors are menagerie, but their competeless show will entertain the centuries when I am long ago an island in dishonored grass whom none but beetles know. So she'll be dead. You guys will still see the auroras centuries later. She'll only be a grave in dishonored grass. And knowing all that and feeling all that is part of the vaster attitude that she is taking into and on herself. Yeah? I find this film really interesting. She doesn't do the structure like she does in most of her poems, it seems. She has it split up between what she feels about the... Um, Aurora Borealis and what she feels about her own self compared to this great sublime thing that she's seeing and what she's doing with all the um, all the catalyzed letters the words that she wants to emphasize is really interesting too because like all of them generally are pointed towards the sublimity sublimity of the the Aurora Borealis, or how she mm -hmm. compares herself to it. I, I find the structure very interesting. Yeah. The grammar of it. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And in a way, I mean, I think that's a great thing to say because someone actually asked after class yesterday about um, why she sometimes capitalizes, um, which is not something people are quite doing anymore by the mid-19th century when she's writing this. Um, if you read 17th century English um, poetry or prose, or even 18th century, in um, original spellings, you'll see a lot of words capitalized as a way of emphasizing. Um, but that's pretty much not done anymore by the mid-19th century. It's still done in German, as, as some of you will know. Nouns in German are capitalized still. Um, and in, in um, English and other language, proper nouns are. Um, but the capitalization does give an effect of the proper noun there so that the C becomes personified. But here, look at the kinds of things that get capitalized as though being emphasized as agents, as personified. The, um, the completeless show, the centuries, um, all of those things are on a level that transcends the human but also makes it possible for a human like her to regard them as peers, at least for a while, the way she regards the sea as a peer. I visited the sea. Now, she took my dog, capital D, also. But her point is, in a sense, you could say, her point is that she is the one who capitalizes. She is the one who is able to see what should be capitalized, because these are her peers. And um, Dickinson is astonishing in the way she, um, she describes, 
she divulges who her peers are. And her main peer, okay, let's look at one more. Um, her main peer is um, pretty amazingly the peer we find at the bottom of the first page, that is the, the page that says Nine Dickinson Poems, um, one of her most famous poems, and yet one of the uh, most misinterpreted of poems, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. So capital D, death, because she's on familiar terms with death. Not on familiar terms as in, yes, I've experienced a lot of hardship and I know what it's like to die, but on familiar terms as in, um, death is her peer. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. So that, if, how many people read this poem in high school? So probably... At least, or I'll just say the high school reading I got was, oh yeah, you're too busy, it's the rat race, you think that, um, you're, that, that you don't realize that death is around you all the time, um, you're doing everything and you don't have time for death, but guess what? Um, so that is, <laughs> are you shocked by that? <laughs> no, I'm just like, guess what, you die. <laughs> right, but yeah, and it feels like it's a warning. Um, that's how at least I learned it in high school. Um, but that's not what the poem is saying at all. That's the opposite of what um, Dickinson's attitude is. Um, she is talking as the um, high middle class or low upper class professional class figure living in Amherst, one of the um, few women at the time, or belonging to the class of women at the time, who actually went to college. She went to what later became Mount Holyoke. Um, and um, there are certain social niceties, especially in a small town like Amherst, that have to be followed. And it would be completely inappropriate for Miss Emily Dickinson of Amherst, Mass., to go and um, visit death um, because death is of a lower social class than she is. That's what it means to stop for something. It's not to stop to consider it. It's to stop as when you stop at someone's house to visit them or to leave your card. And the could not there is a matter of etiquette. When she goes and visits the sea, she's also doing something she shouldn't be doing. Um, but she's willing to break all sorts of etiquette, at least in that poem she is. So she goes and visits the sea, um, probably inappropriate for her to do it. A Jane Austen heroine would not do such a thing, um, but a Henry James heroine might. Yeah? No, we don't, We know the sea is of a lower social class because the, because they're mermaids living there. It's kind of like a rooming house. They're frigates extending hempen hands. And then when the sea gets to the town, um, he looks around and he's kind of a little bit um, not sure that he will feel at ease um, in this town. You know, probably Gloucester or something, but not sure that he's going to feel at ease in this town. Um, and he doesn't have, um, you know, Darcy wouldn't say, oh, I can't go into town with you. Um, but the sea is just, um, although completely grand, class-wise, he's out of his depth, so to speak. Um, because his depth is deep, but it's not shallow. 
Um, here, it's because she's telling us. Because I could not stop for death is a standard thing that you would say as in, um, because I could not stop for um, the caretaker's daughter or for the caretaker's son, um, because it would be inappropriate. And so she's telling us that that's the setup for the first line. Because I could not stop for death, he did the right thing. He kindly stopped for me. So the word kindly there, the adver adverb kindly there, is a um, proper concession to the fact that death is a little bit lower on the social hierarchy, but does the correct thing. That is, the death belongs on the social hierarchy because death knows how to act appropriately. In other words, there are two ways of seeing a social hierarchy, and um, the integration of both those ways is what proper behavior is. And proper behavior is that Miss Emily Dickinson cannot go to death's house. It would be inappropriate. Um, but it's okay for death to um, stop for her because that is um, that does conform to the social rules of that society. Yeah. So why would you specifically choose death as opposed to any other thing that's lower class? Well, <laughs> well, any other thing that's lower class because death is, as remember what Henry James said, the distinguished thing. Um, so although lower class, um, death is really pretty um, different from um, most people you're going to meet of any class. So what she's alluding to here very, very, very quickly and rapidly is a standard um, novelistic or narrative trope, as we say. That is a standard um, narrative situation, which is um, <laughs> something that you, if you've read um, Great Expectations, it's Miss Havisham and Pip. Um, that is, Miss Havisham couldn't possibly, how many people know Great Expectations? So even if you don't, you'll recognize that Miss Havisham can't possibly go visit Pip. Um, I mean, Estelle can't possibly go visit Pip, but Miss Havisham can ask Pip to go visit Estelle and can even say it's very kind of you to visit Estelle. Um, so even though Pip is much lower social class than Estelle, um, he will still with the good manners of the upper class, part of the good manners of the upper class is to praise the good manners of the lower class um, as though the lower class also belonged just as much as the upper class does to the world of manners. It's good manners to treat someone as though they belong to the world of manners. So, um, but, you know, death may be lower class, but death, wow. Um, this poem, um, and I, part, part, of the, part of the poem, part of the reason that I reproduced the poems that I did is that several of them, like this one, are about Dickinson's relation to death. And it's a relation in which, unlike for most of us, she is not um, the um, person being overwhelmed by the fact of death. Whitman does this somewhat differently, but um, somewhat similarly in Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking. Do you remember the word that he hears come out of the sea, the sweet, delicious word that the sea speaks? It's death, yes. The sea says to him the word death, and that word he finds sweet and wonderful. Um, that's the word spoken by the sea. So there is 
um, in some of these figures, and especially in the American Transcendentalists, an attitude towards death, which is not one of fear, um, but which is one of um, love in Dickinson, or um, toleration. I mean, sorry, love in Whitman, or maybe just toleration in Dickinson. That is, um, you know, men, really. But some of them are okay, like the sea and death. For men, they're not bad. Um, that, in a way, is her attitude, is that if you're going to get involved with a guy, then there are really very few who are even tolerable. But the sea, okay. Death, yeah. Um, tolerable. Not fantastic, but tolerable. Um, and that's the narrative um, tone that she's taking. Um, so if you ask why she's taking that tone, um, that's not really the right question because she's taking that tone because of her own self-reliance, because she is the one, because her brain is wider than death, you could say. Her brain is wider than the sky. Her brain is wider than death. Her brain is um, wider than the sea. Her brain is wider than God. Um, and we'll get to that in a moment. So here's one way that she's saying that. Well, I couldn't really stop for death. It would be inappropriate. Just, just, just admire the tone there. I couldn't really stop for death. It would be inappropriate. Um, people like me don't go visiting death. Um, but, of course, you know, he's really pretty um, charismatic, and he also knows the right way to behave, so he very kindly stopped for me. Um, that was good. Um, and so he brought his carriage over, and we went for a Sunday ride. Um, all very, very prim and proper and right. Um, and if death wants to marry me, he'll have to ask my father for my hand. And, you know, it's my decision, but that's the proper form to go through. So the carriage held, but just ourselves and immortality. She's, yeah, Fritz. Could there also be like, a of sarcasm instead? Uh, she's not going to, she's not just going to drop dead. She's not going to kill herself. She's not going to, uh, death isn't really a part of life when you're living it. Because mm -hmm. um, you're so involved with life. So he kindly stopped for me. So like in the end, it does kind of seem like not a warning, but like knowing that you're going to die, even though it's completely irrelevant to your sort of quotidian uh, consciousness. Yeah, no, it's certainly that. That is that um, what she's saying is, of course I'm not going to commit suicide. Of course the fact that I don't fear death isn't going to t isn't going to manifest itself as complete indifference to life. For her, death is a part of life, but not in the sense of oh yes, we must. It's very healthy to understand that death is a part of life. For her, death is a part of life because um, there there are just so many things in life, um, some of which are worthy of her attention, and um, death is one of the things that is at least has a claim on her attention. But the thing is, what, what we tend to say, and you could say the, um, um, the tempting reading 
of this poem is that we avoid paying attention to death. We deny death. We can't think about death more than 15 seconds at a time because it's too horrifying. Um, so what we do is we don't pay attention to death and we actively don't pay attention to it. Dickinson isn't saying that. What she is saying, what she is as a poet and a thinker and a person is someone who is so above what the rest of us are, um, so above any kind of normal fear, not of death, but of life, that for her, there are some things that are worth attention. Lots of flowers. Um, she studied botany in college. Lots and lots of flowers. She really, really knew flowers, and flowers are definitely worth attention. So's death. But Dickinson would never say, oh, there's death at my party. What she would say instead is, you're late, um, but it was kind of you to come. Um, if you imagine Mrs. Dickinson instead of Mrs. Dalloway, you would get a very, very different um, consciousness there. And um, the, that idea is one, um, it's very, very, very difficult and wrong to try to psychologize Dickinson. Um, we spent a lot of time um, reading poems in which what we've looked at is we've gone deep into human psychology by looking deeply into the psychology of various fictional figures in the fiction that we've read or semi-fictional figures in the poetry that we've read. We've recognized things in them that are somehow deeply and fundamentally human. Dickinson is doing something different, and um, she is never going to yield to our psychologizing. Um, if you read a biography of Dickinson, if you read psychological accounts of Dickinson, they are all fantastic demonstrations of how extraordinarily impossible it is to take her measure. Um, they are all fantastic illustrations of her superiority as a mind, as a soul, as a thinker, as a person, um, to the rest of us. You sometimes meet people who you can't imagine what it would be like to be them um, because you can't imagine what, um, you know, certain kind of charismatic people that you can't imagine being them on the inside because insides are vulnerable being someone on the inside is being aware of your vulnerabilities, your hopes and fears and anxieties and so on, but then there are people who seem to transcend all those things. She's a poet who transcends all those things, and that's almost an oxymoron, because poets um, seem to need to express themselves. But she didn't seem to need to express herself. She did all the time, so that she had 2,000 poems. She wrote 2,000 poems, but it doesn't seem to come out of any need. Um, it seems to come instead out of something that we humans, we everyday types, couldn't possibly understand. Much easier to understand death. If death comes to see you, it's because death is interested in you. That's nice. You know, it's, it's always cool when that really cool person that you like turns out to know who you are and even wants to, you know, hang with you. So if death comes to see you, um, that's nice. But if Dickinson comes to see you, I would run. Um, she's scarier. And that's the point. 
So because I could not sob for death, he kindly sobbed for me. They get into the carriage. The carriage held, but just ourselves Oh, and immortality. Um, so those are the people she associates with, death and immortality. We slowly drove. He knew no haste, so death is being um, very calm and slow. We slowly drove. He knew no haste. And I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. So death is being civil, and so she's going to be civil, too. Um, he's being nice. He's driving slowly. He's not um, making the carriage rattle. And so she stops doing her work. Um, that is her needlepoint um, and um, whatever else she's doing in order to be civil with death. She's not looking at her phone as they ride in the carriage um, because that would be rude. And so the two of them pass all of human life. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting a really different description of her from you than I have in the past. Good. Like when I've, yeah, like when I've heard of her, I feel like people thought of her as a recluse. Like she lived in her attic and didn't really, like her poetry like didn't really become a thing until like the very end of her life. She was writing it all of her life. Yeah. But she didn't seem like she would have even any idea of societal norms because she seemed like she... Oh, she did have societal norms. She just didn't care. Okay. <laughs> um, no, she absolutely had societal. She she knew them very well. When she was young, she was, um, you know, trained in them. Um, yeah. She came from a very prominent family. But was she not reclusive? Yeah, she got reclusive because um, because like Honey Badger, she didn't care, um, <laughs> and she really, really, really didn't care. So her reclusiveness. Don't think of it as fear. She wasn't fearful of people. Um, quite the opposite. People were fearful of her, but she was not fearful of people. Um, she was just became less and less interested in them. Um, and why would you be interested in people if you can hang out with death and immortality? Um, and that's, I mean, that's the picture of her you should have. Um, and so if you think of her as, you know, this recluse who's writing poems but is afraid of going out and afraid of society, really that's not what she is. Um, she's absolutely the reverse of that. Um, she is the at least as a poet, which is all that we care about in a sense, um, she is the most fearless, absolutely the most fearless of poets. Um, you know, just talking about herself as a mound um, within dishonored grass, it's, it's not like, oh no, I can't believe this will happen. It's like um, it's, she is on perfectly equal terms with everything that the universe has to throw at us. Um, She's not like Milton Satan, even, who we do psychologize. Milton Satan it protests. Dickinson almost never protests. Um, there are a few poems of hers in which she does protest, and they're um, really her weakest poems. Um, and, but they're incredibly rare, um, those poems where she doesn't like how things are. Um, mostly that's not an issue for her. Um, not liking how things are um, would suggest that she's a victim of the universe, and she's the one poet who is not. Satan is a victim. Lear is a victim. Um, most literature that we read is literature about um, those who experience unmerited misfortune or possibly merited misfortune, to go back to those Aristotelian categories. Um, but Dickinson, there's no, she's, she's never complaining or rarely complains about misfortune. And when she does describe misfortune, what she describes is her own um, indifference to misfortune. 
Um, just to give one more example um, of that, look at the second poem. Um, partly, I, and then we'll use that to get to a moment in um, Emerson. But the, the poem, it's a one-sentence poem that begins with the word snow and ends with the word snow. Um, snow, so, you know, another one of her peers is snow. <laughs> snow itself is one of her peers. Um, snow beneath whose chilly softness some that never lay make their first repose this winter. So she addresses the snow, and that's evocative. That is, it's an address. And she says, beneath the chilly softness of the snow, some that never lay beneath the snow are now doing it the first time this winter, people who've died. And she calls upon the snow um, to be gentle to those who have died. Because most people are not on equal terms with snow, but she is. So snow beneath whose chilly softness some that never lay make their first repose this winter. I admonish thee. So she's admonishing snow. I admonish thee to do the following, to blanket wealthier the neighbor we so new bestow. So give, make a thicker blanket for the neighbor who has died and that we are bestowing to the ground. I admonish you, snow, to blanket that neighbor wealthier, thicker, with more warmth because that neighbor is not used to it. Blanket wealthier the neighbor we so new bestow than thine acclimated creature. Wilt thou austere snow? So she's admonishing the snow to keep the newly dead person warm. If you compare this to the snow that's general all over Ireland, um, there's no doubt that um, Dickinson is much more the peer of the snow than any of the other snow that might fall. Okay, th this is a good place to look at one amazing paragraph in Emerson, who's one of the few um, people whom Dickinson, one of the few humans whom Dickinson thought of as a peer um, when she thought of him at all. Um, so here's a great paragraph from the Divinity School Address. I'll remind you again that the Divinity School Address um, destroyed for a time Emerson's prospects and career, which is a good thing because it made him a writer instead of a preacher, which is what he'd been um, largely until then. Um, and he says, um, what's wrong with preaching? And he says, whenever the pulpit is usurped by a formalist, that is someone who goes through the forms of preaching and of Christianity, then is the worshiper defrauded and disconsolate. So if someone is using the pulpit just to say, here is Christian doctrine, then we feel defrauded and disconsolate. We shrink as soon as the prayers begin, which do not uplift, but smite and offend us. Remember, this is the graduation address to the Harvard Divinity School. We are fain to wrap our cloaks about us and secure as best we can a solitude that hears not. So he's basically telling these new ministers, don't go preaching about Christianity. Um, it's awful when preachers do that. This is their job. 
and he's saying it's awful. And then he tells this little story. I once heard a preacher who sorely tempted me to say I would go to church no more. Men go, thought I, where they are wont to go, that is where they're used to go, else had no soul entered the temple in the afternoon. A snowstorm was falling around us. The snowstorm was real, the preacher merely spectral, and the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him and then out of the window behind him into the beautiful meteor of the snow. He had lived in vain. So I hope your graduation address is half that good, whoever gives it. But what a thing to say. I went to, I went to church. Um, there was a snowstorm. The preacher, the snow was real. The preacher was spectral. He had lived in vain. And that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of view of the world um, that Emerson is pushing in his sense of the sublimity of the human soul. Remember Emerson says in um, the Divinity School Address that the thing Jesus knew that made him so great is that all of us are God, that every person is God. Jesus was the, be was the person who understood that most deeply, but he's no different from anyone else. Well, Dickinson didn't think of herself as God. Um, she thought of God as also someone she couldn't stop for. Um, all right. See you Monday. Read, read, read. And have a good weekend.